And so it wasn't until I ended up at Tiny Prince that we got a dog, we got a puppy, and I started to eat healthier because, hey, new life, new new job, new lease on life, something that I'm looking forward to. I want to feel better. I want to do better for myself. And so I started to eat better. And I said, okay, I'm going to walk my dog every day. And so every day for you know 10 days, 15 days, 30 days, I was doing this little jog. And that 15 minutes, you know, ended up being turning into a mile eventually, and it ended up turning into two miles, and then it ended up turning into three miles. And I realized, you know, two or three months in, that my dog was always she wouldn't let me take a day off. Hello and welcome to the Race Mob Podcast. This is episode number 13. I'm Kevin, entrepreneur, technology and fitness nerd, and the founder of Race Mob. I'm joined by master motivator, founder of Too Legit Fitness, co-chair of the Taji 100, RRCA certified coach, USA track and field certified official, the incomparable Bertrand Newsom. So some of you may be asking, who is this Kevin character and what is this Race Mob all about? Well, this is the episode where we flip the camera, or the microphone in this case, on me. We dive into my background and why my parents and sister have provided constant motivation and are the driving force behind me. We talk about my dog, Kia, which is short for Macchiato, and how she helped me discover running and literally changed my life. From being overweight and self-conscious to living a healthier and happier life, and the many, many lessons learned along the way. It was this transformation that helped inspire me to create Race Mob, because to accomplish great things, it takes a lot of support. Luckily, I have the support of my wife, but the support of a community can be so powerful. It also helps to have guidance and experience from athletes so that you don't have to make those mistakes. And what good are those amazing accomplishments unless you have a platform to share your stories and inspire the next generation? because all it takes is one step, one little change, something small. In my case, it was taking the dog on a walk. That something small can help change somebody's life. So hopefully the story helps you in some little way. This episode is brought to you by Race Mob, an inclusive community for fitness enthusiasts. Whether you're brand new to fitness or you're a veteran athlete, we all need support, motivation, and accountability. Our new community site launches on September 14th, where we'll host online meetups, challenges, giveaways, and live sessions with Coach B, myself, and some of your favorite podcast guests. We'll also be launching online training. Start with a group program like our Couch to 5K or create your own custom program that suits your needs. Head over to racemob.com training, enter your fitness goals, and schedule your free one-on-one -on -one coaching assessment with Coach B. But you have to hurry, we've only got a few limited spots available for this kickoff. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation. Hello everybody, you are in for a real treat today. We have the one and only, our very own Kevin Chang, founder, team captain, innovator, community inspirer, uh, here to share his story on the race mob history, the relaunch of race mob 2.0 and him as an athlete and his vision of bringing the community closer together without further ado kevin how are you today oh thank you thank you b good i'm doing fantastic i mean especially this this whole week we've been um you know talking with a lot of podcast guests we've been hearing just so many inspirational stories you know, I'm always worried if my story will stack up with the rest of the folks that we have on the podcast. But at the same time, I'm, I'm hopeful that not every story has to be about incredible, incredible journeys. Some of them can be, you know, everyday folks that have interesting stories to tell that we can relate to. So I'm hopeful that somebody finds my story interesting and that I can help somebody along their journey. Yes, it will. And you will. Everyone's story is unique. Everyone's story resonates once you're open to share. And we're so thankful that, um, and just with your, your passion, your commitment, and you have done a lot and so much more to come. So let's jump in, man. You're here in California, but we know you didn't grow up here. Uh, take us back, you know, parents, home state, hometown, 
school and and the like? I definitely want to give a lot of props, a lot of credit to my parents. They grew up in Taiwan and both grew up from very meager beginnings. I think my mom often tells the story about her growing up with with 12 relatives in a single room. And my dad similarly, you know, very very meager meager beginnings and, you know, often during those times when we're talking about the 60s, you know, Taiwan was a very poor country, very poor nation and a lot of kids didn't get the chance to even go to school, you know, high school or college, um, middle school as well. My mom was a gifted athlete, and that actually allowed her to attend junior high and high school. She was the point guard for her basketball team and ended up setting all sorts of records in her high school in javelin and shot puts. She was a fairly gifted athlete back in the day in a relatively small village in Hualien. And so had it not been for athletics, she probably might not have been able to be afforded those opportunities to grow in her education. My dad, on the flip side, not an athlete at all. <laughs> Still, like, you know, has has problems like shooting a basketball, will hold it like, you know, with, uh, with two hands and, and whatnot. But gifted intellectual, math genius, literal math genius, would walk into a classroom and would school his teachers. And even his professors walked into college and would teach them, end up teaching them. And so they both got the opportunity to come to the U.S. after college. They went to Michigan State University right around the time when Magic Johnson was there and that great rivalry with Larry Bird. And my mom, being a basketball fan, was, you know, a huge, huge Magic Johnson fan. Um, they're still, yeah, huge fans, but, but, you know, really had a really difficult time moving to the States, not knowing the language, not knowing English very well. You know, thankfully, they just worked. They just worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. My dad excelled in the academics and, and got his PhD. My mom worked and worked and worked at it and got her master's. I think she ended up getting two master's. And so really, my drive and my fortitude really comes from their want to live a better life and have a better life for their kids and the amount of work and effort that they put into it. And so, um, yeah, I was born in Colorado. I grew up in Colorado. It was interesting growing up in, you know, I think the state of Colorado is probably, at least at that time, was about 99% Caucasian. And so we knew very, very few Asians at all. We knew very, very few minorities at all. The closest grocery store that was Asian was about 40 minutes away. Um, you know, it was quite a drive away. And so it's really interesting because I think about growing up in, in that environment, which, you know, you don't think about it at the time, but sure, like you always stood out like a sore thumb. And it was interesting because my parents were great cooks, but they didn't have the ingredients on hand that they were used to cooking. And so we grew up with, you know, our afternoon snacks were very processed foods. Uh, we had those frozen chimichanga burritos, you know, frozen French fries you stick in the microwave, all the frozen pizzas, all of that, pot pies. That was, I loved that food, <laughs> that, those TV dinners, you know, and, right, yep. and like my parents would cook the Chinese food if they could and rice at every meal. And I'd be like, no, I want to have mac and cheese. I want to have, you know, this processed, processed food. So I didn't realize it, but I was growing up fairly unhealthy and so much so that I think it was fifth grade or sixth grade. We had this like TV broadcast that we used to do in the morning at the school. And I was one of the anchors and one of my friends had put on, oh, Connie Chung is like, you know, a news anchor, a famous Asian news anchor at the time. Well, he mistyped it and it said, Kevin Chunk. And that was my nickname for two years. It stuck like that. Kevin Chunk, you know, and it's funny, these things that like stick with you after a while. Like, and so I had this relationship with food, with obesity, with those types of things, even growing up, you know, and my family was so focused on academics from a very, very, very early age. You know, we did a little bit of sports, like I was enrolled in soccer and, and later in basketball, and, but mainly the focus was on academics. You know, we would come home from school and it would be multiplication tables and it would be, you know, math workbooks and booklets and those types of things. And I remember, I mean, I guess it's, it's such an Asian stereotype, but I remember in fourth grade, very, very vividly, I got a C. And it was a C in 
reading. I still remember this. Reading comprehension, it was because I didn't like read an extra book or something. And my mom literally made me cry that <laughs> she, she was on my case for that C. And I didn't understand it as a child. You know, I was like, oh, C's average, C's average. But she said, do you want to be average? That was what she asked me. Do you want to be average? And so it's so funny because it's like these moments in your mind, they stick with you for all of time. And so from a very, very young age, I knew, no, I don't want to be average. I always want to work that extra little bit to be beyond average. So growing up, I ended up going to high school about 20 miles away from uh, my house because there was this international baccalaureate program which had just started. They actually chose like a location. It was the only one in the county. They only allow one in the county. It was 20 miles north of where we were and, you know, 20 miles south of like the, the northern border of the county. So you can imagine, you know, this one school, all of the kids that wanted IB or, you know, these higher level classes from a 20 mile radius were all congregating on this one location. And for me, it was just an incredible experience because, you know, they brought in the best teachers in the county, wanted to teach there because the kids wanted to learn, you know, got to make amazing friends in high school. And I'm still extremely grateful for my parents for offering to drive, you know, me <laughs> in the morning. We had a carpool of kids in my location, but that's quite a drive. That's quite a commitment to take your kid all the way to a high school that's fairly far away, you know, taking those extra 30 or 40 minutes out of your morning, extra 30 or 40 minutes out of your afternoon or, or evening, actually probably more because it was 30 minutes one way. So, so we're really talking about, you know, two hours of your mom's time driving you to school just so that you can get a better education. So I'm always thankful for them for that. And I'm lucky because I ended up excelling really, really well at that school. I ended up being valedictorian. I ended up earning the scholarship, which was the Betcher Scholarship. And so most people outside of Colorado have never heard of the Betcher Foundation and the Betchers. But long time ago, when there was a gold rush in Colorado, and I, I just tell this story because I find it fascinating and interesting. But a long time ago, when there was a gold rush in Colorado, one of the patriarchs of the Betcher Foundation now went out for the gold rush. But instead of mining for gold, he started a hardware store. He sold the pickaxes. He sold the buckets. He sold the, the stuff that enabled people to go out and, and pursue their dreams out there. But he was the one that actually made the fortune. <laughs> so many people went out there and, you know, lost the money. But he had the foresight to know that the hardware store was actually where the money was being spent. And so he took that hardware store. They later ended up having a beet farm and uh, manufacturing most of the sugar for the whole Western United States. A lot of our sugar today actually comes from beets, not sugar canes. And it's because of the Betcher Foundation. So Betcher Foundation and the Betcher Scholarship in particular, yeah, it, it's an interesting story. The Betcher Foundation, if you look at any of the museums in Denver, you know, Natural History Museum, Museums of the Arts, Coors Field, Invesco Field, the Center for Performing Arts, all of them will have Betcher Foundation plaques because they have just given and given and given to the city of Denver over the years that has been their creed and what, what the Betcher Foundation is known for. And one of the things that they're most known for is the Betcher Foundation Scholarship, which is given to 40 high school seniors every year. And the only stipulation for the scholarship is that you must stay within the state of Colorado. So even though I had been accepted to some you know, other universities, Go ahead and, and please share, Kevin. Please do. You know, I think, you know, like Case Western and I think we're talking, you know, Berkeley and the other around here. I think I was waitlisted at MIT. I, I remember applying to MIT, Caltech, like those types of schools and, and whatnot. But, you know, I think for me, I knew in my heart, my sister was actually a better scholar as well. So I have to give her a ton of props for being the one leading the way, leading the charge. Um, she's been a huge inspiration in my life not only in, in college, but also entrepreneurially, which we'll probably talk about later. But, you know, I knew in my heart that I wanted to get that better scholarship because I wanted to pay my parents back for all the sacrifices that they made. I wanted to make sure that there weren't any student loans or student debt, that I was able to go to college, all that debt-free. So I was fortunate, you know, I got the better scholarship, a couple of other scholarships as well, National Merit, President's Leadership Class, a couple of others. So ended up that I was actually being paid to go to college, which was phenomenal. Wow. Instead of walking out of school with a, a student loan or a student debt, I was walking out of school with a, a small 
checking account that had a little bit of money, you know, and they, they capped the scholarships to, you know, the cost of the school and, and all of that. But, um, but I was really fortunate in that all of that hard work from elementary school, middle school, high school, it ended up paying off quite, quite a bit. And so, yeah, so I went to college in Colorado, ended up uh, transferring enough credit into college that I was able to take one semester and do semester at sea, which is this awesome study abroad program. And it ignited my passion for traveling. Semester at Sea, for those who don't know, is this program that basically it's you're on a cruise ship and you stop at 10 different locations around the world in a course of three months. So, wow. So I, I've been to, yeah, I've been to, you know, parts of Asia, Thailand, Vietnam. We went to India. We were in Kenya, Africa. We were in South Africa. We went to Brazil. We were supposed to go to Cuba, but there was tension at the time. So we ended up going to Venezuela. And so, yeah, that ignited a lot of passion for me to realize I have a true love for traveling. I have a true love for, you know, exploring the world. And it also told me that, you know, my major at the time was, well, it, it is in electrical and computer engineering. But it told me at the time that I couldn't see myself behind a desk for eight hours a day, just programming, just coding, just, you know, circuit drawing and, and doing that sort of thing. So I had this passion and I wanted to explore something else. And so that's basically what brought me to San Jose was, you know, I, I found a job that was actually in semiconductors and it was marketing semiconductors. It was product marketing for semiconductors. So it was like, oh, I'm going to be able to do something a little bit different. I'm going to be able to interact with other people and talk with other people and, and all of that. So, so that's actually what brought me to San Jose, which is incredible. <laughs> yeah, which is a funny story. I've known you for 13 years, and we've been chatting for 17 minutes, and 85% of what you just said, <laughs> I've heard for the first time. Wow. That's the coolest thing about podcasts, right? It's like you get to tell your story, you get to relive some of the past, some of the history, all of that. Yeah. Man, it's good stuff, man. So yeah, we moved here in 2006. My now wife, Christina took the plunge with me and we both moved out here. And the funny thing is we moved out here thinking this was going to be a two-year stint and we were just going to head back to Colorado. And, you know, this Silicon Valley thing, it, it might be nice for like young folks, but we'd rather raise kids or do something else or, you know, have that family life back in Colorado. And turns out, you know, we ended up loving it here. But I'll tell you that first year that we were out here, it was a real struggle for me at work. It's interesting when you do and excel really well in school. Um, school's one thing. You know, they tell you what to do. You show up for tests. They tell you exactly how you're supposed to do everything. Oftentimes when you go to work, if you don't have the right manager to help you along the way, to pull you along the way, to coach you and teach you things, you can struggle, even if you are talented and capable and all of those things. So I'll tell you that first year, I didn't really know what I was doing. I struggled mightily and heavily. And it wasn't until I got pulled into another team and had a fantastic manager who showed me the ropes and let me really shine and flow that I really did well. And I started excelling. I've got to give a shout out to Kamal, who was that first manager who allowed me to see that I was capable of doing more. So I was in semiconductors for two years. I always knew, though, that I wanted to do something in web and had a passion for startups, even at that time. You know, and I didn't know the first thing about startups at the time. I didn't know the first thing about programming or developing or designing or any of those things. And so I was lucky enough. I had just applied for this tiny prints company online and got an email back from the CEO like 15 minutes later, like, oh, do you want to come interview? Of course. Yeah, I want to come interview. And I interviewed for a business development role because I was like, oh, I've been doing contracts and that sort of thing. And luckily for me, you know, the business development that didn't make sense for what I was doing at the time, but that CEO saw enough potential in me that he got me a job as a product manager there. At the time, I didn't even know what a product manager did. I was like, what, what, did, what is this role? What do you do? So for me, that was a godsend, really, putting me in that role and that position. And so a product manager, for those that don't know, they're the ones deciding and prioritizing what engineers will develop for a business or a company. And for me, you know, being somebody who's 
an infinite learner, wants to be quick on their feet, wants to figure out solutions when they can. Being at a startup environment where you get to talk to different stakeholders, get to understand their problems, get to come up with creative solutions, get to develop tools that you think will solve their problems, and then seeing a lot of those come to fruition and help a company, to me, that was a, a godsend. So at Tiny Prince, I was there for four years and we were acquired by Shutterfly at that time. So I think three years in, I was applying for an MBA. I thought that's you know the next logical path for somebody like me, um, go back into academics and ended up, we were acquired and financially, it just didn't make sense to go pay, you know, 100,000 a year or what, you know, $120,000 over two years for an MBA versus, you know, make uh, a good amount of money through the acquisition and those types of things. And so for me, I decided, okay, I'm going to stick it out, stay another year, ended up leading one of their larger uh, divisions and, and product launches there uh, in the greeting card space. And that's actually about the time where I got into running. So I know I'm talking all this like career stuff, all this other no, stuff. That's right. yeah. And I do want to talk about running and fitness because it's impacted my life in so many ways. When I think back to when I moved here to San Jose and the shape that I was in, I was a much, much larger person then than I am now. I was probably around 200 pounds. And I think that that first year and me struggling I'm the type of person that when I'm struggling and I'm not doing well, I bury it in food and I eat my way out of it, you know, and at the time, especially I was not into nutrition, health, any of that stuff. And so, you know, anytime I would find myself in a new environment, you know, going to college, I probably gained 20 pounds coming to San Jose, I gained quite a bit of weight as well. And so for me, a lot of times the success in the career world is actually tied to how I'm feeling. and you know, if I'm feeling poorly, I tend to eat. And so it wasn't until I ended up at Tiny Prince that we got a dog, we got a puppy, and I started to eat healthier because, hey, new life, new, new job, new lease on life, something that I'm looking forward to. I want to feel better. I want to do better for myself. And so I started to eat better when I started to go to Tiny Prince. And that winter, I think, is when, or may, maybe a year later, but is actually when I started to find running. You know, I had tried maybe running like 30 minutes and just hating We've it. We've all been there. <laughs> and just like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just do this for a week. I'm just going to, you know, uh, you know, it's not great, right? It wasn't until I started walking my dog and I said, okay, I'm going to walk my dog every day and I can walk her for 10 or 15 minutes. It's, it's around the block. Um, she's a little bit hyperactive and doing the walk, you know, Dog Whisperer, Caesar Milan was like, you got to give them work. You got to walk them. You got to show them who's the alpha dog. So I said, okay, I can walk her for 15 minutes every day. That's fine. And, you know, that 15 minute walk turned into, okay, I could do a, a 15 minute jog. And so every day for, you know, 10 days, 15 days, 30 days, I was doing this little jog. And that 15 minutes, you know, ended up being turning into a mile eventually, and it ended up turning into two miles, and then it ended up turning into three miles. And I realized, you know, two or three months in that my dog was always, she wouldn't let me take a day off, right? So sometimes you have, sometimes you have training partners, and they're like, okay, you can take a day off. My dog would not let me take a day off. And I remember reading something in a, a men's health magazine, and it really clicked with me at the time. And it's funny because we had Joyce Lee on um, earlier this morning, but the article said, if you miss a workout, you are 70% more likely to miss the next workout. And it's always stuck with me, even after all of these years. It's like, okay, if, if you want to be consistent, you've got to plan it out, be consistent, make sure that you are living to your plan and working towards your plan. So that is when I got started into running was my dog, you know, barking at the door every morning, <laughs> making sure that I was getting my miles in and then starting to see progress. And I think there's something magical about starting to see that initial progress, about starting to, you know, we all go from like this, ah, oh, I hate running. It's the worst to like, okay, I'm going from a mile to two miles. I'm now going from two miles to three miles. And now I think there's something magical about being able to go three miles, being able to go 30, 40, 45 minutes that you now can go into the zone and start to enjoy yourself. And I think, you know, before that period of time, I was always going out too fast. You know, if you slow down and enjoy it, 
it's actually fun, <laughs> which is crazy. It's crazy to explain to somebody who doesn't run. But when you actually slow down and you can actually have, you know, your own thoughts, you can have yourself to your own thoughts. And it's actually fun. And I remember even like three months in, I rolled my ankle pretty bad and had running taken away from me for that month. My poor dog. <laughs> my wife tried to run my dog. <laughs> that didn't work. But, you know, and I just I came back with such an invigorated love for running, for activity, because it was taken away from me. Something which we've talked about recently, even, you know, like having these pandemics take away these races. And I hope that we come back with even more invigorated love for races, for, you know, that, that human contact. So yeah, so that's how I kind of got into running. I think we have some similar stories about our first races. Uh, my first race was also Warrior Dash. It was also going down to San Diego. I slept on my buddy Jason's couch. We had some great nights down there. <laughs> got into some debaucherous situations and, uh, you know, plenty of plenty of uh, beer at the finish line and all of that. And great photos, by the way. I've seen some of those pictures, yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, I think you go from uh, not realizing what a live event is going to be like to just falling in love with that live event. And especially that type of live event. I mean, no pressure a festive vibe to it. Everyone, all shapes and sizes, some in costume, some not. And it's fun. It's fun. The distance is good for all fitness levels. And it just sticks with you, especially if you're out there doing it with friends. It just makes that experience even better. So yeah, totally get it. Nice little springboard into how your running career continued to evolve. Absolutely. And it's so funny because you look back and like I was training so hard. I was like, yeah, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to kill it out there. And, you're, and now you look back and you're like, everybody's in costume. What are you doing, Kevin? What? <laughs> you know, I guess it's just my nature to be like uber competitive at, at everything that I possibly can be. So, so actually the idea and the thought for Race Mob came out of that event. And I wrote about this a little bit on the blog um, about Race Mob 1.0. But, you know, my friends, Robert and I, we went down there for Warrior Dash and he was into running. He's actually one of the people that got me into running. And we came back and we were so excited about the event and what we had done. And we just wanted those pictures. We just wanted those photos of, you know, us jumping over fire and crawling under barbed wire and, and all of that. And the photos came out and it took forever to find your photo because, you know, they didn't really use optical character recognition and a lot of the things that we have take for granted today. And then they wanted to charge like $25 for a digital copy of it and like $30 for like a four by six print. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> you have got to be kidding me. But, you know, at that time, nobody, nobody brought phones with them. Nobody brought like anything. Yeah, or GoPros. Yeah, we didn't have any GoPros. We didn't have any cameras. So these were like the only pictures that we had of the event was like these $30 pictures. And so my buddy Robert and I, um, we, were, we were saying like, there's got to be a better way. What, what if we could either pay the photographers like jointly, like pull together some photographers, make this an easier process, you know, make it easier for users to get their photos. And, you know, I'm sure they'd pay like five or $10 instead of like 20 or $30. But, you know, we wouldn't need all that overhead expense. Um, if you can get hundreds of people to buy their photos, it's better than getting right. a smaller portion, mm -hmm. paying a lot of money. That was at least our thoughts at the time. So we had developed a couple of things in that vein. And we actually trying to think of the timelines, but we had actually reached out to a couple of race directors at that point in time talking to them about photos. And we realized that race directors were actually more interested in the front side of their event. How can I get more runners to my event? I don't, I don't really care about that back end stuff, like who's taking photos. And yeah, that's good additional margin on the back end. But I really care about finding more people, finding more people for my event. And so it's funny because I parallel that with like my running career because that same year I ran in Dean Karnaz's Silicon Valley Half Marathon. And I was so excited. You know, I think I got a, a one hour, 39 minute. I was like starting to book oh, wow. it at that sure. point in time. Yeah. yeah. Getting faster and getting faster. And we actually talked to the race director from Silicon Valley Half Marathon, which was Keir Beadle, who 
was actually JT and Scott's boss at the time. And this was before I had met JT and you know got to know uh, about him. It was actually Scott, his business partner, who I first met um, all those years ago. And so, yeah, so it was interesting. We were having all these conversations back then. We had conversations with All-Star Dog Run at the time as well. And we were just trying to figure out this area, this niche where we could help them get more runners to their events, get more racers to come through. And we were all trying to figure out this whole social media stuff at the side. Mm -hmm. Our angle at the time was that Facebook and the Facebook graph was wide open at that time. And so if you signed up for an event and you clicked connect with Facebook, which was very easy to do, um, we could get all of your information and make it super simple for you to check out and complete your order. But we could also figure out which of your friends might be interested for this race. And we thought there was this interesting angle because we had been to a couple of races, at this, not too many, but we had been to a couple of races where we were at the race and we knew somebody was at the race. But we didn't realize it until weeks afterwards. Like, oh, oh you were at right. the you were at the Warrior Dash. You were at the, you know, such and such Silicon Valley half marathon. Yeah. And so we just thought that there was this interesting area there where we could help people locate friends that they might have missed contact with and be able to help them set meeting points. And or we thought, you know, the number one reason you go to a race is to go with your friends. <laughs> That's right. like the number one reason why you would go. So that's kind of the, the impetus to Race Mob at the time, the, the whole idea. Fast forward from Silicon Valley, I was really serious at the time. And now it's like, well, I think that the window is passed now, but maybe in a couple of years, I won't think that the window is passed. But I was serious at the time to try to qualify for Boston. And I was trying my hardest. I think it's a goal. Anybody who gets into running is like, can I do it? Am I capable of doing it? Is there a window? Is there an opportunity? And so I was training my first for my first marathon. And I mean, I'm still like way, way, way far from, I think Boston qualifying for t late 20 year olds is like three hours and five minutes or something like that, probably under three hours now. And I was training for my first marathon, trying to go as gung ho as I could. And I was shooting for a 330 marathon for my first marathon. Um, this was in Las Vegas for the Las Vegas Rock and Roll. They sh shut down the strip at that point in time, but they didn't do it at night. This was a morning run. And something for runners to realize is, you know, a mistake that people that I made was you never want to put, you know, things in your body that you're not used to putting in your body. For me, it was mucinix. I had a cold that week and, um, you know, a little bit stuffed up, a little cough, nothing too bad, right. you know, nothing, nothing too bad. But I took a Mucinix the morning of the race thinking, okay, well, this will help me get over it. Well, little did I know Mucinix just dries your system out. It just pulls all of the moisture out of your body. And so for the first 13 miles, I felt great. I felt fantastic. Right after we hit the half marathon mark, I just fell apart. My legs cramped solidly, just seized up. And I spent the entire second half of that race between a walk, a painful, painful walk and a, and a mild jog. It's so interesting because you look back and before I entered the race and even when I went to the starting line, I always thought of a marathoner as like fit as a fiddle, perfect body type. I and mean, I got to I got to do this to fit in and, and be competitive. And I realized like we come in all shapes, we come in all sizes. You know, you don't have to be the fittest of the fit to be able to make it across the finish line. And it was a really both humbling experience for me, but actually afterwards, it was a fairly uplifting experience for me because I realized that even after all those struggles and, and trials and tribulations and, you know, it being my first marathon and whatever, I still was able to finish it. I was still was able to accomplish it. I was still in a good enough shape that even walking half of the marathon, you know, still able to get over the finish line. And so, yeah, that was my first marathon experience. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, a, a similar experience, we were talking to uh, Joyce Lee previously, and she was sharing her first marathon experience in San Francisco, where the last 10K plus was a, a bit of a grind, but regardless, you got it done. And then the lessons you take from that, it gives you some confidence when you tackle the next challenge as well. Back to the first half of that Las Vegas rock and roll, uh, the first 13 plus, were you on pace? Do you feel you were you put in the work? Were you in shape? Yeah, I was absolutely time? in shape. I was absolutely in shape. I, well, I thought, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I w would have made the time because I was 
I think under eight minutes a mile was kind of where my pace was. Um, so I felt great those first 13 miles. I felt, um, I think I was even at like 745, 750, and I felt fantastic that entire time. Looking back at my training runs and the other runs that I had been on, mile 19 and mile 20 for me, I always cramped in my training runs. Um, I always had those cramps. And I just thought, marathon day, it's not going to be an issue. I'm just going to push through it. I won't cramp. Looking back on it, I probably didn't have the right nutrition strategy, sodium intake strategy that would have allowed me to cross the finish line and a running pace. And so it's so interesting because at the time you just think, oh, I'm just going to muscle through it. Had I had a coach or somebody to chat with or talk to who had actually done a marathon, they probably would have advised me to, if nothing else, have, you know, they have like salt capsules, salt pills that you can bring with you. There's all sorts of things that you can do for electrolytes. And we're not just talking about the electrolytes on the course, which are, you know, oftentimes really, really sugary and, and not fantastic for you. But we are talking about, you know, having having that extra salt, that extra sodium, especially if you, like me, tend to sweat and tend to, you know, your body just tends to dehydrate. So it's so interesting, you know, you look back and I guess I'm the type of person to just analyze every little detail. And that's, that's probably what makes me me is like, you know, we've got the Las Vegas marathon. I'm going to look at every little corner, see what, where the inside edge is. I'm going to map out everything, do the 3d mapping and the, I'm a planner through and through a planner to the core. And, uh, you know, I, I read everything and plan everything. So I thought I was there, but I think looking back at it, I might not have been there. Are you enjoying the show? Help us out by sharing the podcast. You can win some cool prizes like headbands, wristbands, training programs, shoutouts, and more. Especially if you're part of an existing running group, online community, or have friends that you think will enjoy the show. Get your personal referral link at racemob.com slash referral. It's nice, like you said, the ability, because of what you know now, through the other running experiences you've had, being able to look backwards with an objective eye and say, oh, you know, I thought I was, but the nutrition strategy and what that plays a role. And also sometimes it's just mindset, you know, good points. Yeah. And it's funny because we talked to like Ray the other day and I'm always like curious, like, okay, you were cramping. What happened to, you know, like sometimes your mind is more powerful than your body, which is extremely interesting. And there's, there's some, some science to it. I think there are some like energy shots that are like pure cinnamon or pure like you know, capsaicin or something, and it just shocks your mind out of thinking that you're going to cramp. Yeah. And I'm always fascinating about like, you know, the science that's behind like, you know, or can get us through like some of these things like hot shot or something like that. Or yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you tried that before? I have not. No, oh, I haven't tried Lord. it yet. <laughs> I don't, you don't, not as <laughs> I should mention something you do in training that works for you, mimic it on race day. I had read all the buzz about hot shots. I was a part of another fitness group uh, in social media, and the, in the triathletes were bragging about hot shots, hot shots. I did an Ironman, hot shots, hot shots. I'm like, well, heck, if it works for them. And I, I sweat, but I don't generally cramp a lot. And was thinking at San Francisco Marathon where I felt that I may have a chance to PR. It's hills out there. And if I want to stay ahead of the cramps, I'm going to go ahead and take it at a halfway point and be proactive. Oh. <laughs> man oh man my entire system was inflamed nasal hairs you didn't think that nasal hairs had sensitivity man um and never again I'm like and, and i didn't need it necessarily and i've learned it was a lesson learned i never had tried it during a workout and it had the reverse effect it it threw my system off for the balance of the race and all the training that had led up to it was just, you know, it was a byproduct of it. So again, live and learn. <laughs> Hot shots. I cannot shots. endorse. I cannot endorse. <laughs> Probably not the best thing to do on a podcast, but I, uh, you know, other, other forms of uh, electrolytes. So, but yeah, back to how did your running journey continue from that uh, very first marathon? At that point in time, and I'm not sure, I thought, well, marathoning probably just isn't really for me. You know, the long hours that you put in, the amount of training, the amount of time that you put in. And I think I got as much enjoyment from half marathons and the lower distance without putting my body through it. So for me, I thought, you know, half marathon and below is probably the distance that I wanted to be at. I did, however, within those first six months, 
I had signed up for the Big Sur Marathon. And because, you know, I knew, you know, they have their system opens and you got to be within the first 15 minutes and I had the email. So I signed up. And so I went to the Big Sur Marathon and this is May of 2011 or April 2011. I think it was right on my birthday, right around my birthday. April 27th? April 27th, my birthday. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was right around there. Same day as my brother's. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And, uh, And I didn't do as much training. And that's when I learned you've got to train the hills. <laughs> if you're, if you're going to run a hilly course, you have got to train the hills. And so mile 19 for me, cramps, cramped up the entire, you know, legs locked up and just hobbling to the finish line. So I think at that point I was like, marathons for me, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if I'm ever going to do a marathon ever again. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's kind of how I, I felt about it at the time. <laughs> what year was that again, Kevin? That was 2011. Yeah, 2011. And was there a change with the Big Sur course that year? Yeah. So that year was one of the out and back years because basically there was a mudslide out, I think, just a little bit past Pixie Bridge. And so I was thankful for the sleep because we didn't have to bus out at 3.30 in the morning. It was fairly cold that morning, I remember, but, you know, just such a beautiful, gorgeous course. And okay, so this is another like, hey, dummy, bring your camera. <laughs> bring your camera. That's a beautiful course, man. Right? It's like, <laughs> and I look back and I was like, oh, we have the Big Stir guys on and like, oh, I've got to have some pictures. And I don't have any pictures. I don't have any selfies. I don't have any pictures. I was so focused on trying to get a time and trying to, you know, blah, blah, blah that. And I look back on it now. It's like, Savor the journey. Who would have cared about the time? Like, I don't even know what my time was, right? It's like 418, 430. I don't know. I can't remember, hey, right? That's a great time <laughs> on that course, man. I've run that course and I came in at 440. So even with the cramping, that's a great time. All I know now is like, I wish I had some photos. I wish I had some photos because I, and I still remember quite vividly, I had a friend who was running the relay. Robert was running the relay at the time. And I remember seeing him on the course all the way down. We were like running these hills. And we gave each other a high five that stung for like two miles, but we were so (laughs) elated. We were so happy. We saw each other on the course. And that was like the boost of energy that anybody needs when they're going along. And just incredible memories, incredible time. When you have friends out there on the course with you, granted if they're running shoulder to shoulder with you, or you saw your buddy doing the relay and the high five, I was fortunate to run in 2015 with Becky. Hernandez, one of our, our very first Race Mob podcast guests. Yeah, good stuff, man. Absolutely. And I think it was really during those first couple of races that I'd started noticing team and training. I started noticing team challenge. And it was really then that I started thinking about, okay, I really wish that I had a community that I could belong to that would help me along the way. Because every race up to that point, my wife doesn't run. Robert, I tried to get him to go a couple of races and um, he, you know, didn't really want to. And so I was always showing up by myself and alone and, you know, seeing everybody else being like, oh yeah, they're part of that running group, but not being a part of any of those as of yet. And so that, that right. was the other like side of race mob was, you know, obviously coming from a technology background, we were thinking, oh yeah, you can go to the races your friends are going to, but it started then creeping into my mind, like, yes, we can actually build a community so that anybody can show up at a race and have friends cheering them on. And, you know, we might not be that big yet, but that it has always been that long-term vision of, you know, no matter where you're from, no matter where, how you're training, no matter if you already belong to a running group or if you don't. I love to travel. I love, and, you know, God willing, someday I will be at one of these major events, major races, and I'll just be able to say, hey, here's the meeting point. Let me, let me meet all of you. Let me hear your story. Let's discuss. It's going to happen. Yep, absolutely. So I ran Big Sur, you know, back in 2011, started Race Mob in 2012, where I quit my job. I just decided, like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to double down. I'm going to get my entrepreneurial MBA. I'm not going to, you know, pay the money to the MITs and the Harvards and the Stanfords, but I am going to just double down on myself. And, you know, at that point, I had won this business competition um, up at Stanford, and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. Wait, say that again. I don't want to go to get my MBA at <laughs> MIT or Stanford or Berkeley. 
And I won this entrepreneurial competition at Stanford University. Okay, Kev. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was like this um, after work entrepreneurship class led by Brett Walter is a great entrepreneur in the area that um, got to teach. He, he has a lot of connections throughout Silicon Valley. And at the end of the year, you pitch your startup. And I think I won $10,000 in fake money. So <laughs> not, not too much, right? Um, I think we were supposed to do like a, a meeting with the VC at that point in time, but I think schedules conflicted or, you know, things happened and never ended up happening. But, but yeah, so I decided to double down on race mob. I think I detail a lot of this in the blog, but for me, the beginnings of that journey was talking to race directors, going to conferences, talking with timing companies, with, you know, the photography companies, just trying to get a good understanding of the industry. Who were the major players in the industry? What were their needs? What was missing, I guess, overall? And so I think a lot of learnings at that point in time, I had built, like, this was the day that, like, text messaging was like, oh, could we get text messaging? So I had built this, like, really quick text messaging system for a timer. I was, was doing some wow. cool stuff. I had, <laughs> we're, you know, and, and it was at these conferences. I think these conferences were when, like, Color Me Rad was blowing up and the Color Run was blowing up. And, you know, they were just starting to use Facebook advertising for getting people to races. And these really large race companies were starting to get set up. And it's kind of the precursor to all these runs that you see, the Glow Run, the Bubble Run. They basically all came from this little location in Utah. I don't know what's happening, but they all like just communicate with each other in Utah. They've all come from there. Like, wow. Uh, Warrior Dash came from there. Color Me Rad came from there. Color Run came from there. Hot Chocolate Run, I think, comes from there. Like, they all came from this, like, little location. And the business model was, okay, we're going to build a theme. We're going to build a theme for a race. And then we're going to go and just kill it on Facebook advertising and go from race to race to race to race, or location to location, location, location. Super interesting. And they all have deep connections with each other. So, you know, oftentimes when you would run Hot Chocolate Run, well, your email address would get passed to, you know, some of these other races and companies. And so it was a really, really interesting time to be involved. You would see this growth hockey stick, you know, these people that would come to one conference and like, oh, I've got an idea for run. The next conference, yeah, I'm running 50 races across the United States and we're ranking in five to $10 million in revenue. And it was like incredible. And, and they were just like, yeah, I just like put a couple ads online and it's some of it's my secret sauce, but it was like an incredible, incredible time to be <laughs> in the industry and to learn from others. And I wasn't sure if, you know, race directing was for me, that didn't make a lot of sense for me, but I still thought that there was a need for community and community involvement at races and being able to find other people. So yeah, I think it was 2013 where I got the headbands and we launched Race Mob trying to develop this community of people who wanted to be social on race day and who wanted to chat with each other and talk with each other. And I think I get into this a little bit in that blog, but there were a lot of problems with that initial Race Mob launch. You know, I think I sank probably $30,000 into website development and other things. And I think the biggest, biggest couple of problems, you know, reflecting back and looking back on it was one, I didn't have a partner that was able to hold me accountable and make sure that I was constantly working, constantly grinding, constantly doing things. And two, I think that we kind of went a mile wide in that we were attracting a lot of people. A lot of people believed in the vision believed in the idea, believed fundamentally that this was a great thing, but we only went an inch deep in that, hey, you got the headband, but for reasons that I didn't realize, like my emails weren't getting to people, they were getting stuck in spam and, you know, a number of other things, but basically you got introduced to the brand. And if we were at a race, then we started building really, really strong and deep connections with people that were at races, that were at events that we were at. But we weren't helping people along their fitness journey as much as I think now we have the capability of, of doing. We were only building those community connections, but we weren't really helping people see results and helping people. And so, so yeah, so that was RaceMob 1.0. You know, there was some travel that I was doing during that time. There was an injury that I, I sustained. And and I just yeah, very lucky to be with us, man. That's yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a ladder accident. And it was, you know, for me, 
I was setting up the tent at five in the morning and I was out there for a couple of hours and getting emails and not seeing any money or anything on the back end. And just after a while, for me, it was, I was starting to see it as work and not the fun that I had seen it early on. And I wasn't able to actually go out and, and actually run the courses and do the races and those types of things. And it made sense for me at the time. Um, I think we're talking 2015 to say, yes, I've learned. I've learned a lot. At the beginning of it, I didn't know how to program or code. I taught myself how to develop and code and do all that. I taught myself how to hire contractors. I taught myself marketing. And I was leading, listening to a lot of entrepreneurs at the time, a lot of people I still follow today in their journeys. And I learned. I learned a ton. And so when I went back to corporate life at KiwiCo, I brought with me all of that experience. And I was a product manager that was 10 times more capable than I was when I left Tiny Prince. And so for me, you know, I was able to walk into that situation and relatively quickly turn them from a company that was looking for funding and looking for another round to profitability within a couple of months and able to turn conversion funnels that were not performing very well into conversion funnels that were performing at 3x what they originally were. And that allowed us to then start advertising in Facebook because now we were margin positive and that allowed us a huge, huge growth trajectory. So it was an incredible journey. I ended up at KiwiCo. I was there for five years. I ended up growing a team of 10 people. I led the entire technology division. So I was in charge, not just the product manager, but also in charge of managing the developers, uh, managing QA. And I learned so, so much because up until KiwiCo, I had never managed anyone. And so I learned a lot from that experience. I had some great managers myself at KiwiCo that taught me the ins and outs. And I think key to managing people is, is the same as in life, right? You want to you want to have empathy. You want to understand where people are coming from. You want to help coach them and understand what their goals are and help coach them to, to be able to reach and attain those goals. And you want to be direct and honest as well and not add fluff to anything. And it's in those ways that people will start trusting you. So for me, I had built a team that, you know, our retention rate was basically 100% for, for the four years, right? in a technology industry, in an industry where any of my developers could have easily gone to a Facebook, a Google, and been paid, sorry guys, been paid like twice as much, if not more than what they were being paid at KiwiCo. But, but they stayed and they stuck around because they saw the mission, they saw the vision, they liked working with me, we liked working together, we were all learning. And it was just an incredible, incredible experience for me, the whole KiwiCo experience. And so that was also the time that I started moving away from just purely running into different aspects of fitness. And I have to credit a lot of that to ClassPass. And I don't know if our audience knows too much about ClassPass, but at the time, um, it had this uh, monthly unlimited business model where you paid, I think it was originally 99, then it was like 200, but you could go to any of these boutique classes around the Bay Area. You were limited to three classes a month. And so it was at that time where I started testing out Pilates, started testing out yoga, started testing out spin classes, started testing boxing and these boot camps. And then I started, I started going to CrossFit. And to me, CrossFit had always been this thing that was like unattainable, was like, oh, that's only for the people you see on TV that do 100 pull-ups and X, Y, and Z. And somebody at one of the gyms was just like, no, you should just come test it out. It's very scalable. It's for any fitness level. You can just try it. See if you like it. See if it's something that you will enjoy. And I really, really enjoyed that entire year on ClassPass when it was unlimited because there's something about being able to be dropped into any group of people and being able to form pretty like instant connections with those folks. It's something I wasn't like super comfortable with when I first started going to classes like, ah, oh, I'm shy. I don't know if I'm going to. And over time, it's been like, yeah, you can drop me into anywhere and I will feel comfortable. I will probably, you know, after, after years of training and focusing on fitness and thinking about every aspect of, of fitness and body and nutrition and supplements and everything. If you drop me anywhere these days, I probably will end up, you know, in the top one to 2% of any class. And I think that for me has been this journey of, yeah, 
getting from like fat kid Kevin, uh, chunky Kevin to having that confidence, having that belief in myself, having that ability to go in anywhere and, and have that confidence to succeed. And it doesn't come overnight. You know, my first CrossFit class, I didn't know what a barbell was, didn't know how to pick it up, like barely lift lift that barbell. It felt so heavy to me. I didn't know what a clean was. I didn't know what a jerk was, a snatch was, you know, probably some of most of our audience probably doesn't know what these things are. And the thing I love about CrossFit is, you know, half like the fitness level or, or athlete that you are, it's probably 30% technique and understanding and working and working on technique. It's probably 10% strategy and thinking and knowing your body so well to know okay, I can go all out for two minutes. I have to be at this pace. If it's a four minute workout, I have to be at this exertion level. If it's going to be a 12 minute to 15 minute workout and knowing your body so well that you can dial that in. And then it's 10% just want to, you know, you're dying. (laughs) And it's the every day there's a workout that is going to challenge you. And every day that you go to a CrossFit class, it's going to be like just what your body can do. Some of it's just strategy and, and learning and I love that strategy component. I can, you know, geek out for days on on what that strategy is going to be. And then it's just like, can you suffer enough? Can you get through this enough? Can you, can you put your body through, you know, what your mind wants to do, but your body's saying no. And, and that's what I started loving about CrossFit. And I loved ClassPass because for me, it was like, I was part of 10 different communities. I was chatting with everybody from everywhere. I was doing the Pilates. I was doing the yoga. I was doing the spins classes. And I was just, I was learning and I was growing and I was loving so much of it. And so, so yeah, so that's why I continue to do CrossFit today. Um, you know, ClassPass has changed their business model a little bit. I've joined a couple of different CrossFit gyms and, you know, it's been, it's been a real struggle for them during the pandemic. For me during that time too, I ran the San Francisco marathon and, uh, I think it was 2017. I'm wearing the shirt right now. Oh, yep. And for me, that was a real, a real joy because I didn't realize that I had, I had forgot that I had signed up for the San Francisco Marathon until until maybe like eight weeks before the marathon, and at that point, I hadn't I hadn't run nearly at all, and it was a real joy to see that the strength training actually helps incredibly with running. And there's a really great podcast called Strength Running, and the way that your muscles, your tendons, your bones all of those parts of your body improve with strength training and with putting your body under more strenuous exercises than just your body impact. And, and so actually I felt really, really strong throughout that San Francisco marathon. Good. It's the only marathon that I've run completely from beginning to end without cramping in the middle. And I was able to get up to that fitness level relatively quickly, um, which was incredible for me. The one bad part about that marathon is I think I did break a bone in my foot. I think it was that somoidal bone um, had a slight stress fracture. I think it was the same one that Greg had talked about in his race. And it's just something to be aware of that even though your body feels good, even though you know you think you can do all that training, if you don't build it gradually enough and put the time, the energy, the effort into it, um, you can still have some of these overuse injuries. And that's also the time I realized if you're going to see a doctor, sometimes for these things, you've got to see the right doctor who's familiar with running because I saw a podiatrist and he's like, no, it's got to be gout. It's definitely gout. It's swollen. It's gout. And I was like, I don't, you, you, don't you think it's related to this marathon that I ran? Right. And I think what had happened was I had had a stress fracture and this is very common for that injury injury. You have a stress fracture and it can actually also lead to a blood clot. And, oh um, and wow. so it was, um, not a good situation right. yep. there mm-hmm. for a bit. And mm-hmm. I think if I had gone to the right doctor, we had, could have cleared it up much better. But one night I was just, my foot was throbbing in pain, all of that. And then, and then for some reason I woke up and it was okay. And it's actually a fairly scary situation because if it was a blood clot, those clots can, you know, obviously travel, travel yeah, heart and brain. Exactly. And so Fairly scary, wow, scary yeah, situation. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy, but... But I'm glad you're sharing that story for our listeners, much like Joyce shared a, a <laughs> medical-related story as well in an earlier podcast. It's important to share those situations like that. And so, yeah, so that was 2017. 
fast forward here to 2020, and I know we've taken a lot of time. I can talk for forever. I'm that kind of person that can talk for forever. Your show. We could keep, 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 <laughs> keep it moving, man. I'm loving it. Race Mob, even though it's not something that I've actively been working on for a while, it's always been the deepest passion of mine because running is how I got my start into, um, you know, moving from fat Kevin, chunky Kevin, um, these negative body images of myself to, to feeling healthy, feeling better about myself. And of course, there's times where I, I like to say, yeah, I'm probably consistently inconsistent a lot of times. Um, there are definitely times where my swing, you know, my body weight swings or I'm a little bit less healthy, but it, it's because of running that I always have that confidence that I can come back, that I can always find something that I love, that I can um, have the aerobic capacity to be able to go the distance that will allow my body to melt the fat off, that I have the discipline to follow nutrition plans and, and all of that to, to get myself. And if I really, really need to get to you know, a really low body fat percentage, I know I have that ability to do that because I've experimented. I'm a, a constant self-experimenter. I'm always trying to, to test the fitness waters. And so it's because of running and, and really only because of running that I started that journey altogether and started learning more about my health, my fitness, started being able to feel like I could attend classes and do the other things. And so for me, this, this race mod 2.0 and being able to talk to you and being able to talk to the audience it, this time around, it's, it's really about helping people realize their full potential, you know, no matter where they are on their fitness journey, no matter where they are on that spectrum. I think between the two of us and between our guests, we can absolutely help everyone. So, you know, those that are really, really early and haven't yet started and want to be able to set a goal, set a plan, build that training plan, um, have people cheer them on, give them advice for that first 5K. For those that are like me, consistently inconsistent. What's your PR? Your dead, was it a deadlift of 500 pounds or something like that? 507. 507. Let's pounds. be clear yeah. about that, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, those, those PRs only came after being consistent. And, you know, quite frankly, the, the CrossFit fees are fairly expensive. It's not accessible to everyone, right? And so, you know, I think our gym membership is $200 a month, um, if not more. And so it's only after paying them and being like, oh, crap, I'm paying a, a lot of money. I've got to go show up. I've got to do this. That makes you consistent. It makes you make sure that you're there and showing up every single day. But, you know, I think I tend to be on that consistently inconsistent side unless I'm paying a little bit of money or, you know, making sure that I'm going to um, have a plan in place, that I'm going to stick to the plan. I'm going to have accountability. And so, again, I think this Race Mob 2.0 and people are listening to this podcast and hearing the podcast. What I'm most excited about is the behind the scenes, what you and I are building here behind the scenes, which is we're building an entire framework and membership that's going to help people in their journey, in their path. And it's going to be affordable. It's not going to be $200 a month. You're going to have to pay a little bit. Um, I think we're thinking like a dollar a day, right? A little bit more than a dollar a day, a little bit less than a dollar a day if you commit long term. But it's a program that is built around helping every individual, no matter if you're a beginner, no matter if you're consistently inconsistent, no matter if you're consistent and you've got plans and you've got training. If you need accountability, if you need people there to cheer you on or want people there to cheer you on or have something to share to others. And if you're even if you're inspiring others, even if you're, you know, Joyce and, and other people, I think we have something here that will allow you to build your community even more, help you get to the next level in earning money for the time and effort that you put into your running for inspiring other people and helping other people along their journey and helping motivate and, and bring people along. And I think that we're building something incredibly, incredibly special here. And so so Race Mob 2.0, you know, I think it starts with the stories. It started with this podcast. It started with really listening to people, helping people, understanding how running has influenced so many of us in our fitness journeys, and then realizing that we can now pay it forward, help others in their fitness journey. And so that's what I'm most excited about right now and working towards right now. So profound, that mission, that vision especially as it centers around community. And we all need that right now, Kevin. We do, because with so much uncertainty 
increased stress levels. As we both know, working in corporate America, that pressure, that stress, sometimes it causes, it triggers bad eating habits. In many cases, uh, during our lifetime, we haven't seen this amount of stress. So people having a fitness outlet, a community that is welcoming to all fitness levels, that gets it, that is able to provide an openness, a level of comfort, um, and it's just good for everybody. And we don't want price to be a barrier, that we feel that there's going to be tremendous value out there based on just saying yes, and people can get a lot from joining the community without having to, to, to pay. And if they feel that the, 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 the membership opportunity is there for them and they want to contribute, then by all means. But our mission is for healthier, happier, uh, more fulfilled individuals, realizing their inner athlete, allowing them to flourish, and just having some fun in the process with all that is going on in our world. There is still the opportunity to be happy, and healthy and support each other along the way. So I'm enjoying the journey and looking forward to the the chapters that are yet to be written. Absolutely. Well said. So that's me and not so much of a nutshell. Like I said, man, I've known you for seven years and I had to pick my job off the ground on, on several parts of that. And again, we know we're just scratching the surface. We'll have this, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. Uh, that's what I love about this format. It's just us and other members of the of the community heavily focus on fitness, but also just talking about life in general and our shared experiences, opening up about some of the, the personal struggles and pivots where we had those life lessons that we learned uh, along the way and being able to share that with other individuals, understanding that we're not in this journey of life, journey of fitness alone, and that there are better days ahead. And on that, I think we should open up a cold one. Yeah, yeah. Your cheers to that. Yes. Cheers. Race Mob 2.0. There you go. We appreciate you, you, Kevin, your vision. And uh, again, the best is yet to come. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, B. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Race Mob Podcast. Check out all of the show notes or find a running buddy online at racemob.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on moving.